Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In Podcast. Yeah, 38 episodes. Uh, there was quite a bit of a delay in producing this particular episode. Oh, what can I say? Lots of stuff has been going on, and I'm sure your life is very busy, too. It's funny because I, I listen to other podcasts, and uh, it seems like all the other podcasts that I enjoy listening to They've all sort of had a hard time keeping up with their self-imposed production schedules over these last few months, so I don't feel too much different from any of them. But uh, normally, it would be Thursday nights at 8, 7 central. That, that's when I aim to put out a new episode of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In podcast, so we'll see how that works out. Anyway, um... Let's get back on track. I've been a little bit distracted of late by the Gospel Music Channel, which is actually airing the Promised Land television program. That was a spinoff from Touched by an Angel, and many of these episodes of my podcast talk about the time I spent working on the Promised Land television show. So uh, it's being shown on the Gospel Music Channel. I've been watching it. I've been actually recording it for my own archives, which, as I understand, according to... Supreme Court uh, rulings and copyright legality precedents, um, I am perfectly within the limits, uh, legal limitations of copyright laws to make my own recordings for my own use. And that's what I've been doing as this has been shown on the Gospel Music Channel. See, I already had an almost complete collection of Promised Land episodes that I recorded from the first time they were uh, broadcast on CBS, I recorded them on VHS tape. But it's it's a nicer quality to get them off the satellite uh, right now. I'm using DirecTV, and you know I appreciate what the Gospel Music Channel is doing. After all these years showing me Promised Land, uh, although I am a little bit put off by the the censoring that's going on. Sometimes it's just minor stuff. Sometimes you wouldn't miss it. Sometimes it's because somebody swore or said the word stupid. And it's kind of, you know, no big deal that those things are, are deleted from the from the broadcast. But still a little bit annoying when it's maybe an awkward edit or something. And, and I think to myself, well, where's the harm in using the word stupid? I mean, come on. But anyway, uh, well, okay, let me get back on track here, because the last couple episodes of this podcast, I just rambled and just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so I've decided I really need to focus my energies and uh, really uh, give you a, a podcast that doesn't seem to ramble as much. So here I go. I'm going to talk specifically about when we did an episode of Promised Land, uh, fifth episode of the second season, so designated episode 205, and it was called Mooster's Revenge. And this was almost exactly a year after we did episode 105 from the first season of Promised Land, which was the first episode in which you saw Ethel Mooster played by Cloris Leachman. So we had that one episode with her, that we filmed in the fall of 1996 and just about one year later, almost exactly, uh, we shot another episode, Cloris Leachman as 100 year old Ethel Mooster, who is the great aunt or great, great aunt or something of, uh, of the character Claire Green in, uh, in promised land. All right. So they go out to visit, uh, 
anti-mooster. And all right, in order to keep myself from rambling too too much here, I'm going to just first tell you the plot of this episode is. They make a return visit to see Mooster. Mooster has been having some dreams or hallucinations or visions or something. She's been seeing Andrew, the angel of death, well-known from Touched by an Angel. And she's a little bit afraid of him. She thinks that she's going to die. And she keeps telling him to go away. And he doesn't. He keeps saying that it's, it's time, Mooster. You have things to take care of. Well, then the Green family shows up, and uh, they're all saying, Hi, Mooster, how are you? And in the middle of this, she sees Andrew again, and she starts shouting to Andrew. She's the only one that can see him. Go away! Get, don't don't come back here! And, of course, the Green family is a little bit confused by this. Is she telling us to go away? Is she, is she completely lost her mind? Is she finally going senile? We don't know. Well, anyway, um, we come to find out in this episode that... Um, Mooster's uh, daughter, when she was an adult, so a grown daughter, uh, died. She was an artist. She was a musician. She was, um, you know, had all the emotional whims that you would expect from an artistic person. And... uh, (laughs) I, I laugh when I say that because, you know, I don't necessarily believe that's, uh, that's true, nor is it a valid excuse for somebody who happens to be artistic to have um, emotional extremes and, and, you know, brush it off as, well, I'm an artist, I'm allowed to... No, you're not. You're a person. Come on, grow up. <laughs> you can be an artist and still be uh, a, a kind of a normal person to get along with. But anyway, okay, back to the episode. Um yeah, Mooster's daughter uh, died under some suspicious circumstances, and we start to figure out that maybe it was a suicide. But Mooster's been in denial all through the years and, and won't say that it was a suicide, and, and, and is very upset with her estranged son-in-law. And basically, the two of them don't like each other. The two of them suffered this loss, but... Um, Kind of, kind of blamed each other for it and never really reconciled. And so uh, that's the situation. Mooster has an estranged son-in-law somewhere else in town. Well, uh, the Green family is in town to visit Mooster, and they decide, well, we're going to help you out a little bit. We're going to do some spring clean. Well, not spring cleaning, but uh, some autumn cleaning. And, uh, and Mooster suggests that they gather up all her junk, all her stuff she's been gathering and just get rid of it. Sell it all, have a garage sale and just sell it all. So the green family starts to do this. And at one point, um, they get a really good offer on Mooster's piano. So they decide to sell the piano. And uh, when Mooster finds out about it, she's just, she's, she's really upset. No, no, don't sell my piano. And then, well, I thought you said to sell everything. No, no, but not the piano. Turns out the man who made the great offer on the piano is, unbeknownst to Russell Green until after the fact, uh, Mooster's estranged son-in-law. This was the piano that Mooster's daughter played so well, played all the time. So Mooster doesn't want to part with it because, you know, this is her daughter's piano and the estranged husband or well son-in-law of mooster husband of the uh dead daughter he wants the piano because hey you know that's his wife's piano 
But uh, so the Green family sort of guides them through this uh, very bitter dispute they happen to have with each other until they finally help them to reconcile. Mooster decides to bury the hatchet and go over and and have a pleasant time with her estranged son-in-law, and they become friends again. At which point Andrew appears once again to Mooster, again is the only one who can see Andrew, the angel of death, and Andrew reveals that, no, Mooster, it wasn't your time to go, it's his time to go, and so the unfinished business you needed to do would be was to reconcile with this man before he dies, and he's... and um, He dies. Well, he dies off camera, but uh, in the voiceover at the very end of the episode where Dinah Green is, uh, you hear her voice reading a letter to Mooster. She says something about how, you know, she's sorry to hear that uh, her son-in-law died, but she's glad that they became friends before that happened. Ta-da! That's the main plot of the episode. And, uh, as far as behind the scenes making the episode, a few things to consider here. Um, the man who wrote the original episode with Mooster, uh, William Schwartz is his name, he also wrote this sequel episode. Uh, Cloris Leachman won an Emmy for playing the part of 100-year-old Ethel Mooster, and I'm not sure if she won the Emmy for the first time she played the character or the second time she played the character or maybe both times she played the character. It was kind of interesting. You know, Touched by an Angel was a much more high-profile show. Uh, I would say that the producers, uh, executives in charge were much more concerned with uh, putting effort and money and <laughs> and publicity behind Touched by an Angel. And yet, I don't think Touched by an Angel ever won an Emmy Award, but Promised Land did. Well... You know, you can say Cloris Leachman did, but anyway, it's just kind of interesting. You know, I I I felt like I was working for the the redheaded stepchild show, being on Promised Land instead of Touched by an Angel. You know, so that's one of the observations that I would always be prone to make. Well, you know, our show won an Emmy, their show didn't. You know, the whole us versus them thing, but. You know, and there was a time when I believe I, I, I'm really I'm no good at playing softball, right? So I didn't get involved with this, but I believe they had a softball uh, uh, rivalry going on where crew members from Touched by an Angel versus crew members from Promised Land, and they would get together and play softball in the spring. And I, I really don't know uh, how how well they did. Uh, years later, essentially the same crew that did Promised Land was also then working on the Everwood show after uh, after Promised Land had been canceled. And essentially the same people that had been working at, at Touched by an Angel for several years were still over there. They had the rival softball team thing going on again, but this time they'd send a flyer out to say, you know, this Saturday at such and such a field, such and such a time, we're going to have a softball team. And they would say it's the good versus wood softball game, (laughs) or rather touched by an angel versus Everwood crew, you know, to get bragging rights for winning a softball game. And I don't think it ever got any more serious than that, except, you know, people trying to have a little fun. But anyway, okay, where was I? Way back when uh, William Schwartz wrote the uh, Mooster episode and its sequel. Now, even though it was the same writer who did the first and the second Mooster episodes, it wasn't the same director. 
And you might think, well, that's kind of odd. Why wouldn't they bring in the same director if it's essentially a sequel kind of an episode? Well, it doesn't really work like that in television. It makes sense that the same writer would write a follow-up story. But as far as directors go, I don't know, in an episode, an episodic series like this, um, directors come and go. Any given director might do two or three episodes uh, of of the series per season, but mm-hmm. it you know it doesn't always have to be the same director here and there. I mean these these guys we had uh, let's see the first Mooster episode was directed by a man by the name of Victor Lobel, and Victor directed um, every other episode of promised land at the beginning of the series uh episode one episode three episode five and then he wasn't there for a while uh victor directed shows like um star trek voyager or star trek deep space nine um so he would you know he'd go work on that he'd come back to promised land or he'd go do touch by an angel he was it was kind of coming and going so i don't know that he had any specific uh uh, affinity for Mooster in particular. He just, you know, took the assignments when he was available and, and came and directed some some Promised Land episodes. So, uh, second season of Promised Land, Victor just d- d- didn't happen to be around for the Mooster episode. The, Mo- the second Mooster episode there in season two was directed by a man by the name of Jim Johnston. And he happened to be the same director who did an episode called King of the Road in the first season of Promised Land, and also an episode called The Collapse, an episode where uh, Russell Green was working in a mine, and there was a mine collapse, and he was trapped inside with other miners. And So, you know, doesn't we don't necessarily need one particular director to direct any specific kind of episode. They were all very versatile guys, and so we just happened to have uh, Jim for this second Mooster episode. Uh, but even though, you know, it was written by, again, the same writer that did the first one. Uh, the only character that returned from the first Mooster episode was Ethel Mooster herself. Uh, there was a character in the first episode, which was Ethel Mooster's grandson, uh, maybe a cousin of Claire. Uh, uh, the part played by Tom Amandez who, oddly enough, became a regular on the Everwood show later on. Uh, but for some reason, Tom Amandas did not return for the second uh, Mooster episode. There was a, a reference in the, uh, in the story that, oh, he's off uh, hunting. He's off with his friends on a hunting uh, vacation. So, uh, Kind of an easy way to dismiss uh, the character. <laughs> If I were Tom Amandas, I might have felt a bit slighted. But, for, you know, for all I know, he was busy doing something else. Uh, just wasn't available to come work on the episode. Plus, the episode really had nothing to do with his character. Uh, also, let's see, uh, the first year we worked on the Mooster episode, we we did the interior and exterior of Mooster's house at an old historical-looking home in uh, Draper, Utah, on the south end of the Salt Lake Valley. For some reason that I don't know, uh, when we did the second Mooster episode, we did not go back to that same house. We did, however, go back to Draper, Utah. So we were probably within five or six blocks of the the first house, but for some reason 
we we didn't we didn't get go back to that house and i don't know if it's you know maybe maybe we did something wrong maybe we you know broke some furniture or something the first time i, I have no idea what, what what why that was they just weren't able to reach a deal to use the same house once again so there was a house again the second time through that we used just for the interior just a couple different rooms of Mooster's house, her bedroom, and a couple other places in the house. And then for the exterior of Mooster's house the second time around, we actually used a building at the Wheeler Farm, which didn't look anything like the Mooster house we had seen the year earlier. Uh, well, it looked like maybe the same vintage. <laughs> this house might have been the same age, but... Uh, other than that, you know, there's a different color. Everything about it was different. But uh, anyway, we, Wheeler Farm uh, is just kind of in the very middle of the Salt Lake Valley, and it's sort of a historic farm. So, um, you know, this would be where, like, uh, school field trips might go out there to observe people uh, looking like they're doing working with animals or different farm and ranch activities going on in a historical setting and sort of a, you know, a living museum sort of a thing. Um, and so, yeah, so we used the place, um, for Mooster's house and a barn, uh, exteriors and, uh, yeah. So that's basically, all the relevant, uh, you know, behind the scenes stuff, I guess, for the for the Mooster episode, part two. <laughs> uh, we did have the the character of Mooster's estranged son-in-law was played by a man whose name escapes me at the moment, but uh, you might recognize him if you saw him. He was this actor was on a sitcom sort of a comedy-slash-drama sitcom called Maud in the 1970s, and that was produced by Norman Lear, who did All in the Family. I, for all I know, Maud was actually an official spinoff of uh, All in the Family. But um, B. Arthur played the title role of Maud, and this other gentleman played Maud's husband, and then he also was on the Mooster episode with us. The There were... St- Scenes in this second Mooster episode called Mooster's Revenge featuring Mooster's daughter. And the daughter was played by uh, a woman named Dee Wright. Now, Dee Wright is the real-life wife of a radio personality in Salt Lake City named Doug Wright. So uh, if you listen to the radio at all around Salt Lake City, uh, there's really only one local talk show host who takes calls and talks about all the relevant issues of the day and interviews the governor and the newsmakers and stuff throughout the uh, the day from nine until noon, and that's Doug Wright. And so his wife, Dee, was on our show, and uh, that was kind of fun. So I, I, I know Doug Wright still to this day will brag about... Uh, if you mention Cloris Leachman, he'll say, "Oh yeah, my my wife was in uh, was in a, in a show with her." So, well, there you go. That was Promised Land. All right, uh, I don't know what else to tell you really about that episode, the uh, Mooster's Revenge episode, except that 
Well, I think I talked about this when I talked about the first Mooster episode. Uh, Cloris Leachman is a bit of a character. <laughs> Maybe you might even say a bit of a handful to work with. But uh, from my perspective, it wasn't that big of a deal. I was just doing what I always do. But I think some of the actors, some of the fellow actors, um, it was a little bit difficult for them. And I don't know exactly how to explain why it would be difficult, except that uh, she just, you know, she's larger than life. And sometimes larger than life is a little bit larger than you want to have around you all the time and, and work with somebody. I don't know. I and how, what do I mean by larger than life? Uh, I don't know that she would deny uh, that she's a bit of a show off. And if you saw Dancing with the Stars when she was on there, uh, it's a bit of a show off. You know, just and and some people that are entertainers, if they don't seem to have an off switch, <laughs> you know, it might. I, I don't know. I I hate to. Uh, go get too deep on this because, again, from my perspective, working with Cloris Leachman was no different from working with anyone else. It just not, but I just I did know that there were times when uh, the, the director maybe thought she was a handful. Uh, and the only reason maybe I should I mention that now is that there is one scene in this episode where um, uh, Russell Green comes into the house. And Hattie has been playing the piano, and uh, and Mooster's having one of her flashback hallucinations, and and then they stop and they talk, and Russell Green kind of puts his arm around Mooster and says, uh, "Hey, we've been cleaning things out, and we're taking care of things." And Mooster's a little bit delirious. Oh, good! I'm glad, Russell Green, that you're helping out. Uh, and Gerald McRaney, the actor, has his arm around uh, Cloris Leachman's neck, but it's such a tight hold that if you look at it a certain way, it might actually look like he's got her in a headlock. And so it's, it's funny to think, well, you know, if, if these actors were, were finding it a little bit challenging to work together and to see, to see Gerald McCraney holding Cloris Leachman in a headlock, there's, there's just, there's just a little bit, uh, I, you know, you may watch that and think nothing of it. He just think he's, it's a very tight sort of, uh, arm around her trying to talk, uh, to her. And, and I look at it and I go, wow, he got her in a headlock. He must be really annoyed. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, what can I say? Cloris Leachman is, is to me, nothing but, uh, wonderful, very talented. And, uh, hey, she brought a, she brought in an Emmy award for promised land. So, you know, I got to thank her for that. Uh, there were, there were a couple of guys on the crew. I, I think the director of photography and the camera operator in particular that, uh, they were laser disc collectors at the time. And this was, this was kind of right at the very beginning or maybe even slightly before the DVD format was introduced, but they were, they were big collectors of laser discs because, you know, that's where you got the really high quality, uh, movie collections from, uh, uh, the day before our last day working with Cloris Leachman, they both got on the phone and called up a place that's now called DVD planet. At the time it was called Ken Crane's. It was in Southern California. It was this laser disc mail order place. And they called up and had and ordered special 
shipped in overnight uh, laser discs, uh, uh, copies of um, Young Frankenstein. And so before Cloris Leachman left, they, they got their Young Frankenstein laser discs and had her autograph uh, the, the covers for them. It, it's something that, uh, um, yeah, we'd work with, uh, well-known people a lot. And for some reason it's, it sort of became commonplace, but also it just seemed a little awkward to be asking celebrities for autographs all the time. So it actually didn't, didn't happen that often. I didn't do it very often. Nobody really did it very often. Uh, even though, sure, we're we're impressed that we're working with some of these famous people. It was actually kind of rare that we would ask for their autographs because, on the one hand, um, like I said, it's a little awkward asking for someone's autograph like you're just some regular fan off the street. You know, you know, you're you're better than that. You're a crew member, right? You're not just some random fan looking for autographs. You're very professional. On the other hand you reach a point where it's like, you know, if my friends don't believe me that I worked with Cloris Leachman, then I don't care. <laughs> They're not good enough to be my friends. Look, I was in the same room with Cloris Leachman. We worked on a show and uh, we were paid by the same person. She was paid much more than I was, but uh, there's the story. So if you don't believe me, then pfft, right. So I don't need her autograph as some sort of proof that this happened. Okay. <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, yeah, so that's the uh, the Mooster's Revenge episode of Promised Land. Um, yeah, we were getting deep into the second uh, season right now. Everything was kind of clicking like clockwork. Um, at this point, we were starting to get the word that we were going to return back to uh, St. George, Utah, to do some more filming uh, that fall. And so it was only about three episodes later that we found ourselves back in St. George. But after Mooster's Revenge, we did uh, an episode called St. Russell, and I talked about that on a previous podcast. And then the next episode we did was called Take Back the Night. And so this is a very serious episode about uh, rape awareness and... Um, and all the horrible things that can happen um, there. So, yeah, I'll tell you about that episode next time. I feel like <laughs> it's a very dark and disturbing episode, and I'll tell you about it next time. On a very dark and disturbing episode of the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In Podcast. So, again, I'm going to try and get my schedule back on schedule, which will be new episodes of this podcast, Thursday nights at 8, 7 central. And you can find those episodes at uh, moviestandin.blogspot.com. Or you can just look for the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In Podcast on your podcatching software, especially uh, iTunes. Go to the iTunes Music Store, type in Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In, and it'll find my podcast, and you can subscribe for free. And you can feel like you got something from iTunes for free. But you really didn't get it from iTunes. You got it from moviestandin.blogspot.com, but you used your iTunes software so that it was a very easy thing for you to get. If you subscribe in iTunes for free then the new episodes of the podcast will be automatically downloaded to your computer, depending on how your download settings are set. But that'll be kind of fun. And then you can just listen 
And, uh, yeah. All right, that's enough for now. I'll see you next time on the Memoirs of a Movie Stand-In Podcast. <laughs>